Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome home. Welcome to Sweetwater Christian Church. Uh, welcome everybody watching online. Glad that you could join us this morning as well. I'm Zane Goggins. I'm the pastor, and I'm glad to be with you to share the love and word of God with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord for receptive hearts and minds to receive his love and word. So if you would bow with me in prayer. Father, I ask for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that receive your love and word this morning. I pray that everything I made up or came out of my brain won't be remembered by anyone else's, but I pray that everything that you have to say to us this morning would be received with gladness and joy and shape us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Uh, last week, uh, Gerald, one of our elders here, uh, took over the proclamation of the word. Uh, he sort of put a, an exclamation point at the end of our Beatitudes series with a message on how God uses and loves imperfect people like you and me, how we can't hide our blemishes from God and he still loves and uses us even in spite of our blemishes and imperfections, which... Uh, was a very great message, so I thank Gerald for that. I don't expect to start another specific series right away. Uh, I actually try to actively not go from sermon series to sermon series. Uh, I think that's a totally fine way to plan out a year's worth of sermons. That's fine. No problem with it. It's just not my preference. Uh, I like to use sermon series as a way of shaping and molding us in specific ways that I think God is calling us to. Uh, And then there are times in between, times that are a little more ordinary. Uh, Series are special, holidays are special, everything else is ordinary. And ordinary is not a bad thing. Ordinary is holy. Ordinary is holy. We sometimes believe this lie that if church isn't some extravagant thing, then it's not worth coming to, it's not worth doing. And that's just not true. Ordinary is okay. It's more than okay. It is holy. Our God became an ordinary human in an ordinary time and place with an ordinary job before he got into ministry. Uh, He had ordinary disciples. His body and blood are represented by ordinary elements on our table, and he created a church full of ordinary people like you and me. He was very special, obviously. He was God, had an extraordinary life, but much of his life was very ordinary. So, in the church calendar, we have, you know, Advent and Christmas and Lent and Easter, That's about 30% of the calendar. And then the rest of it is called ordinary time. It's literally what it's called. We are in ordinary time. Um, So ordinary is holy, just as special times are because God is holy. All that to say, we aren't starting a new sermon series right now. We will in the fall. Um, For times that are a little more ordinary like today, we like to follow the wisdom and the guidance of the lectionary, just a collection of scriptures, Uh, that are gathered for uh, each Sunday, crafted to retell the story of Jesus in a calendar year. So, uh, as followers of Jesus, we are students of his story, whether those uh, things are ordinary or special. 
So today, the lectionary brings us to a fascinating story in Jesus's life in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll be in Matthew 14, 13 through 21. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. The Bible's in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, you can just have that one. If you want to study the Bible together, email me. We'll set up a time. Matthew 14, 13 through 21. At this point in Jesus's ministry, Jesus is probably the most popular that he's ever going to be. Um, He's becoming known as someone who is a really good teacher, who teaches in parables. Uh, He's becoming known as a prophet, someone who speaks on behalf of God uh, to God's people. Um, And he's more famously becoming known as a miracle worker, someone who can cast out demons and heal physical blindness and other ailments, Uh, someone who raises people from the dead and cleanses lepers and calms raging storms of wind and rain and thunder just by the sound of his voice. And we get to this point in Jesus's life where he's very popular, but his cousin, John, we know him as John the Baptist. His cousin, John, was just executed by King Herod for being a a wild and crazy preacher out in the desert. And so that's uh, where we find ourselves in the text today. He just found this out, literally sentences before our text today. And like any other ordinary person would do, Jesus begins to mourn. He needs time for himself. Uh, And so he hops on a boat and tries to get away from the crowds that have been following him around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He goes to a deserted place where it can just be him and God and his mourning. And so uh, we got to remember, though, he's popular. And these crowds, they don't know his cousin was just executed. And so the crowds seem to find a way to get to him in spite of his ex- uh, his efforts to get away and mourn privately. Uh, Have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to somebody serious in a room and someone walks in and starts talking small talk? It's like, read the room, right? Uh, This is kind of the situation that Jesus finds himself in, a state of seriousness, of mourning, and then people just suddenly show up wanting to see cool miracles and hear a good good parable. Uh, But as we will see in our story, Jesus is interruptible. So, Matthew 14, 13 through 21, I'm reading from the NRSV this morning. Now, when Jesus heard this, the execution of his cousin, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, well, here, bring them to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. 
and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about, and those who ate were about men besides women and children. We're about 5,000 men besides women and children. Copy and paste error there. So this story is traditionally called the feeding of the 5,000. It probably says that right above the story in your Bible. Uh, Even though we know that there were more than 5,000 people there, uh, because it says there were 5,000 men besides the women and children. Uh, they did this weird thing in Bible times where you only count men in crowds, and we've uh, moved on from that for good reasons. Uh, So this may very well have been the feeding of the 10,000 or the 15,000, if there were a bunch of kids there too. We don't really know, but either way, it's a really big crowd. And it's a really big hungry crowd that that has sort of impeded on Jesus's alone time. Now, there are certain stories in the Bible that are really important. Of course, they're all important just by virtue of being in the Bible. But some stories are held in higher regard than others in the entire corpus of Scripture. And this is an old practice. For example, the Exodus story is the most important story for the Hebrew people. It's just the most important one. It's more important than... Uh, creation, Noah's Ark, Ruth, Naomi, Deborah, and the judges, Samson and Delilah, and so on. Not that all of those aren't important. But believe it or not, the Exodus just has a certain sort of transcendence that helps shape the identity of the Hebrew people. So it's, it's more important. It's held in higher regard. And this story, the feeding of the 5,000, is kind of one of those stories. It's transcendent. It's identity shaping for the early church. And it reveals a lot about God. Maybe maybe not as much to the level of the Exodus, but this story is actually really important to the authors of the four Gospels. The odds are that if you have any experience reading the New Testament, you will probably have read this story because other than the resurrection itself, this is the only miracle, only one that is in all four gospels. Of all the miracles of Jesus, raising people from the dead, healing people, all kinds of of things, this is the only one where you can find it in all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is so important to the biblical authors that even though it's in all four gospels, it's told five times. So Matthew, it's so important to him that he retells it again in the next chapter. It says the feeding of the 4,000, but it's the same words, the same context, and the same food. It's so important to the biblical authors. And it's really important to the early church. Many of us just don't recognize that. And it's important for two main reasons. The first is because of the type of miracle it is. It's a food miracle. It's a a free lunch miracle. Free lunches will make you a popular person pretty quickly. Free lunches uh, are the kinds of things that Jesus likes to do. Uh, It's the kind of miracle that makes the word spread among the poor, providing needs. This is why Jesus is the most popular 
uh, that he'll ever be in the Gospels. From here on out, it's really downhill. He starts to challenge people. He starts to get uh, uh, people challenging him in public and, and speaking poorly of him. But it's not just a food miracle. It's actually a bread miracle. I don't know if you noticed, but Matthew, he doesn't say that Jesus distributed fish. <laughs> it's just the bread. And Mark says the same thing. It's a bread miracle. Now, in the ancient world, bread is food. Today, we have tons of variety that if I say the word food, you probably think of, I think of General So's chicken. That's just what I want at all times. I think of that. You might think of tacos. You, you think of something, and, and maybe what you think of doesn't necessarily even have bread in it but not in the ancient world. They didn't have those things in the ancient world. In the ancient world, maybe even especially in this region of the world, bread and food were essentially synonymous terms. Uh, There's even a few places in Genesis and, and other parts of the Old Testament where our English word says food, but it's the Hebrew word for bread. They are synonymous terms at times. And in many places of the Old Testament, the way that God provided for his people was by sending sending them bread. Think of manna in the the book of Exodus uh, in the desert for the Israelites. It's a miracle of supplied needs, and a bread miracle would have been very important to the gospel writers because it points to God's abundance and blessings. It shows that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. You know, many of Jesus's miracles are actually just what God does naturally, but he speeds up the process. So instead of growing the wheat, he, he speeds up the process by making bread. And instead of, you know, allowing the grapes to grow ripe on the vine, he speeds up the process and turns water into wine. And uh, instead of letting fish go through the birth and life cycle, he speeds up the process by just putting them on a plate for us. Jesus has power over the natural world to create abundance for his people. And this is one reason why the miracle is so important. But I think the bigger reason why this miracle is so important and formative for the early church is because this story reveals a lot about Jesus's character. It reveals something important about God, not just that God supplies for our needs, not just that God has power over all creation, even though those would be great sermons by themselves. What is revealed about God here? It's verse 14. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them. Compassion is what this miracle is actually about. God has compassion. Maybe going a little further than that, God has compassion on the crowds for lots of people. Even if all they're looking for is to see another miracle with no regard for how Jesus is feeling after just losing his cousin. You see, it's not just that the, the crowd, it's not that the, the crowd deserves or has earned any compassion. Jesus just has compassion for crowds and crowds of people. We're usually pretty specific in our compassions. 
some people have compassion for orphans. Some have compassion for babies. Some have compassion for like those adoptable dogs on the billboard by the financial center. Uh, some people have compassion for the sick or the refugees, the homeless or the abused or the disabled. We don't really have the bandwidth to cover everyone or everything at all times. We're usually really specific in our compassions, but Jesus's compassion is boundless. Jesus has compassion for crowds and crowds and crowds of people, for endless situations and circumstances and life stories. Our text today is a story that is much more about what God is like than it is about free lunch. And it is about free lunch for sure. It is about God supplying human need, but it's more about why he supplies human need. Because God has compassion for crowds and crowds of people. Jesus has compassion on the crowds that you are in. You might be there just to see a cool miracle. You might just want to hear a good sermon, which I don't know why you're here. You might be there just because your spouse dragged you there, or you might just be curious, or you might be completely skeptical about it all. Whatever crowd you are in, you are unable to escape the boundlessness of Jesus's compassion. This is a really important truth to the gospel writers who are trying to convey this to us. Matthew does it twice, remember? Because we have this natural tendency to want to make God's compassion like our compassion. Uh, we want God to have compassion on who we think he should have compassion on. Uh, we, we want God to agree with our versions of soteriology and eschatology and ecclesiology, as if we have this some sort of enlightenment that God himself hasn't figured out yet. <clears throat> we have this tendency to exclude or to sort crowds into arbitrary groups to have compassion on who we think maybe deserves it more. But this story is telling us something different altogether. This story sort of echoes the words of God himself back in Exodus 33. Uh, when God stood right in front of, of, in front of Moses, and Moses was praying for the Israelites, a bunch of people who uh, got a lot of things wrong. And they were having a hard time and they needed bread to eat. And God said, I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And God had compassion on the crowd. No exclusions, no groups, no levels of deservedness. Here's the hope that this story presents to us. Here's the reason why every gospel writer was sure to include this story. The hope is that if Jesus can look upon 15,000 people, even when he has every reason to turn them away and have compassion on himself privately as he mourns, he can indiscriminately have compassion on all of them. Then Jesus can look upon you and indiscriminately have compassion. Your life is not outside of the bounds of the possibilities of the compassion of Jesus Christ. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion, and he has compassion for the crowds. 
But there's something else amazing going on in this text. Uh, Something else that makes it important. Jesus has the compassion to supply the physical needs of the crowd, the compassions to pick up the lunch tab. But there's another kind of compassion that we see in this text. The compassion, or, or the first compassion included you, and the second compassion also includes you. The first compassion was why Jesus supplies human needs, because he's compassionate. The second compassion is how Jesus supplies human needs. And we find it in verse 16. Jesus said to them, the disciples, they, the crowds, need not go away. You give them something to eat. You do it. Jesus didn't say, I'll give them something to eat. He said, you give them something to eat. This is how we know this story isn't really about multiplying food. It's about his compassion and how he chooses to express that compassion to the crowds. (coughs) Jesus supplies the needs of food, but Jesus is also supplying the needs of ministry. This miracle story is just as much about the disciples' ability to feed the crowds at the direction of Jesus' compassion as it is about the crowd's ability to eat as a result of his compassion. It's not merely about physical supply, it's also the spiritual supply. So here's the thing. Jesus could have easily made this miracle like very easy for everybody. He didn't have to use anybody to make this miracle happen. He, if he can multiply food, then he could have just as easily distributed the food. But the crowds and the disciples wouldn't have learned the more valuable lesson that the way Jesus chooses to express his compassion for the crowds and crowds of people is by straight up telling us to do it. When we look at him for the miracle which he gladly provides, he is looking back at us and saying, you do it. In his infinite wisdom, love, and compassion, Jesus supplies the needs and looks at us to hand it out, not because he's lazy or because he doesn't have time to do it himself, but because this is how he expresses his compassion upon the world. Obviously, he does that ultimately on the cross, But what our text today is teaching us is that Jesus is the great delegator of his own ministry. He doesn't just handle it. He could. But he invites you to be a participant in the miracle with him. He invites you to be compassionate with him. He invites you to do the things that he does and say the things that he says and supply the needs that he does. He invites you into his ministry. Jesus doesn't have his own ministry website with his own name as the ministry name, jesuschristministries.org. That does not exist. Well, maybe it does, but that's not what Jesus does. There's, There's tons of ministries out there like that because it's the kind of ministry that we would create, one that looks like us, sounds like us. Jesus doesn't have a website with his name on it. He has a church with his name on it a church that looks like him and sounds like him 
and shares in his work in the world to share in his compassion on the crowds and crowds and crowds of people. The compassion of ministry is perhaps the most intriguing compassion that Jesus has for us. It's the compassion of participation in his kingdom. But more than that, it's the compassion of inviting you to share in that compassion. This miracle story is an important one. It's an important one because it tells us a lot about Jesus. Not only is he capable of extravagant miracles of supplying human needs out of an abundance of compassion for the crowds, but he has compassion on us to share in his own compassions. Jesus is compassionate on the eaters and the feeders. And any given time, you and I, at at any given time, you and I are either an eater or a feeder. And either way, we are all part of the crowds and crowds of people that Jesus has compassion on. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have communion together as a family. God, I thank you that you have compassion on all of us, that this is so important to all the biblical writers that they mentioned it five times out of four. Father, I thank you that you are compassionate. Father, I ask that you would help us to see how we can share in your compassions for the world around us, for the people in front of us or next to us, for ourselves, for you. We love you and we ask for the grace to love you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.